0: Experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at www.dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello and welcome to episode 11 of the Diz Unplug Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian Michael Bowling, and I'm joined by my co-host and producer Craig
1: Williams. Craig, how are you? I'm good. I, I'm I'm great. It it was uh. You know, right now I'm in sunny California. I hope it's sunny California, and I'm uh, soaking in the rays and enjoying some Disneyland time. And life could not be better.
0: That's great. Have you peeked over the wall yet to see the the raising of Fantasyland and the is because they've broken ground now on our Star Wars expansion.
1: Oh yeah, no, I've. Uh, I've been sneaking around as much as I can with uh, <laughs> binoculars and some some definitely zoom lenses and really just trying to be inconspicuous about how much I'm spying on everything that's happening.
0: Yes, as as you as you're standing on the trash cans and <laughs> Exactly. And all that. Anyway, great. Yeah, it's um it's it's exciting what's going on in the park.
1: No it is and yeah. it's uh you know, obviously, we're we're not recording this right now while we're out there, even though we're both <laughs> there together and we easily could have done this. This is a little bit in the future, but uh, no, I'm I'm very excited to, to see everything that is happening uh, with the park right now and see this transition uh, since over the past couple of years. I've been able to watch uh, watch Disneyland kind of move through just just a lot of the same. So I my first visit. Since I was a little kid and taking some time off for it and coming back, Cars Land was already there along with um, along with the Buena Vista Street. So this is the first time I'm going to be watching like real construction happening and real progress being made. So I'm very excited about it, seeing where it's yeah. going.
0: And you'll get to see, basically, uh, Disney Hollywood Studios completely transformed into a new park.
1: I, I know. That's... That's also something that I, I don't know if I'm ready for it, but it, it's coming. So, uh, again, as of the time that we're recording, this hasn't quite happened yet. But by the time this is released, it, we w- were saying goodbye to Lights Motor Action and Honey, yeah. I Shrunk the Kids Playground. My Catastrophe
0: favorite. Canyon, that was a shock hmm. to see the photos. Yeah, released that, that it is just leveled. I know. And no trace of it.
1: And the worst part is, uh, like Rhino and I were constantly saying, you know, we uh, we really should get over there and and look at it and kind of document it because a bunch of other websites were were doing a much better job at it than we were. <laughs> but uh, you know, we we have so much on our plate that there's only so much time to to climb the steps of Lights Motor Action to to look down upon uh, where Catastrophe Canyon was, and then all of a sudden, before I knew it, it was completely gone. <laughs> yeah. Like, I didn't even get to see it one last time.
0: Yeah, I'm but, trying to figure out what they're going to do with Walt's plane. I know. That's, that's the one thing I'm most concerned about.
1: Yeah, I I have a feeling that they will treat all the props that were back there with the utmost care and, uh, you know... I, I the the one hand I don't want to see them go into the archives and then just kind of disappear and come out at random points onto the future but uh, I, and I'd prefer seeing them there but the the important thing is that they're taken care of and that they don't fall into just complete destruction.
0: Oh, yeah, I agree. I, I think they should bring the plane back and restore it and then charge absolutely outrageous prices to fly people in it.
1: No, I mean, <laughs> you have two people right here who would definitely pay to get <laughs> yeah. to it. Really? Yeah. So,
0: anyway, well, since we're talking about construction uh, at uh, Disney World, and well, Disney World and Disneyland, well, that's what we're talking about. In this episode of Connecting with Walt, in this we are going to get to know today three Disney legends who built Walt Disney World: um, Joe Potter, Joe Fowler, and Richard Irvine. And also, we're going to be starting another series, and uh, that will be on both Disneyland and Disneyland Podcast as well as Connecting with Walt. Um, I'm calling this the Disney Legends series, and we'll. We'll occasionally run this series to talk about individuals who have made an extraordinary and integral contribution to the Walt Disney Company. So Major General William Joe Potter, Rear Admiral Joe Fowler, and Richard or Dick Irvine were instrumental in the design and construction of Disneyland and Walt Disney World. It's unimaginable that Walt Disney World that we know today would exist if it were not for the genius of these three men. So listeners to my 60 Years of Disneyland History series on the Diz Unplugged podcast, Disneyland Edition, are familiar with the accomplishments of these men in designing and building that park. So let's take some time to get to know each of them a little better, since these are names you'll be hearing over the next few episodes of Connecting with Walt. Now, as a preface to this episode, I want to caution sensitive listeners or those who have young children listening that I used an abundance of direct quotes to tell the story of Walt Disney and these three men. We will relive a time when political correctness had yet to develop in our society. And in this male-dominated environment, we will be living for the next hour or so. Um, Cursing is not necessarily considered to be unacceptable language in the workplace. I chose to not censor the quote so as to convey the emotion behind the statements. So, listeners who find this type of language, you know, questionable or offensive, uh, may want to give thought to signing off and joining us on our next episode of Connecting with Walt. Otherwise, I think you're going to have a good time
1: with yeah. these stories. Uh, yes. Absolutely, and that—that, that of course, to to sum it all up. If you're upset with what uh, we're quoting, please do not send us emails about it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Though write directly to the source.
1: (laughs) Exactly, yes. (laughs) I'm I'm sure they're still somewhere in the Haunted Mansion, so go find them there.
0: You'll just have to figure out which park. (laughs) Exactly. So Anyway, well, Admiral Joe Fowler was born in Lewiston, Maine on July 9th, 1894, and he really is an admiral. Uh, he graduated from the U.S. Naval Academy in 1917 and served in the United States Navy from 1917 till 1948. He went into duty during World War I as a navigator on a submarine. And four years later, he graduated from MIT with a degree in naval architecture and began his career in naval construction. He then supervised the construction of the USS Panay and its five sister ships in Shanghai, China, from 1925 until 1929. So Fowler designed and constructed 29 warships in the 1930s and 40s, including the two largest aircraft carriers of World War II, the Lexington and the Saratoga. Fowler went on to serve four years in World War II, And after the war, he commanded the San Francisco Naval Shipyard in 1946 and 1947. He voluntarily retired from the Navy as a rear admiral in 1948 after 32 years of service. So from 1948 to 1951, Fowler had his own office as a consulting engineer. But in 1951, the Secretary of Defense asked the admiral to return to active duty. So, Fowler established the Federal Cataloging and Standardization Programs, then accepted an appointment by President Harry S. Truman in 1952 to be the Civilian Director of the Federal Supply Management Agency. So, upon completion of this assignment, Fowler joined Walt Disney in April of 1954 as an Administrator of Construction for Disneyland. And in the mid-1960s, Fowler went to Florida under an assumed name, searching for a site and quietly buying up land for what would become Walt Disney World. So now in his mid-70s, Fowler's can-do reputation got him assigned to head construction of Disney's second theme park, and the park opened as scheduled in 1971. What, what amazes me about all the men we're going to talk about is they had full careers and then went over and worked for Disney in their retirement years I know, and, right. and, and, ac- and accomplished uh, things that nowadays would take what people would do in their lifetime and consider it an achievement and this was just sort of the 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 end to a long career
1: oh exactly it, it just it, it takes my idea of retirement and it just puts it to shreds now I, now i think i'll be working my entire life to do anything just as worthwhile but oh we'll see well, i don't, I don't want to yeah. rule myself out yet <laughs>
0: Right, you still have, you still have a ways to go. You're yeah. young. Well,
1: you know, I'm I'm on the track, so I could be retired hopefully by forty. So, uh,
0: oh my and, goodness, no,
1: I'm joking. <laughs> I joking. W- I will be working until I'm in my seventies and eighties. I'm sure, but that's just because uh, as we were talking about before we started this, we really enjoy spending our money traveling and yes. having a good time. So. <laughs> yes, we do. Yeah.
0: Hopefully, I'll be working for the Diz in my retirement years.
1: Okay. Not, <laughs> so. Maybe not as good as working for Walt Disney directly, but still, not, mm-hmm. not too shabby.
0: Yeah, no, no, I agree. Yeah. Well, you know, you all might be wondering how the Admiral crossed paths with Walt Disney. Well, during his time establishing the Federal Cataloging and Standardization Programs, um, Fowler came into contact with the Stanford Research Institute. And at the time, that was headed by C.V. Wood, and they became friends. And, uh, again, listen, those of you listening to the 60 Years of Disneyland series are already familiar with C.V. Wood and his contributions to the construction of Disneyland. Um, when Fowler retired for the second time in 1953, he and his wife moved to a ranch in Los Gatos, California, in the San Francisco Bay Area. And Fowler decided to call C.V. Wood whom he called Woody, one day just to say hello. And Stevie Wood was delighted and said he was bringing a man to see Fowler, but didn't say who this man was. Well, you guessed it. The man was Walt Disney. Walt Disney had come to Las Gatos to see a small railroad. And Walt knew all about Fowler's career and his nickname as Can-Do-Joe. So he talked with Fowler for an hour And they went to the orchard that had the train Walt wanted to see, and they all rode it. And after being together for two hours, Walt said, Hey, your name is Joe. My name is Walt. No more of this admiral in this business. Joe and Walt. (laughs) Bold. (laughs) Yes. Oh, that was Walt, though. (laughs) So he, one of his greatest traits was he could talk to anybody and hold his own, whether it was a five-year-old child or the head of one of the most powerful countries on the planet, yeah. or or a NASA engineer.
1: So, uh, incredible.
0: Yeah, and he didn't have a high school education. I mean, so it's, it's just amazing, his genius. Um, Walt then said, I'm going to send you a ticket for the first of the week. I want you to come down and see the studio and maybe get the feel of things and help us build Disneyland. Fowler later said to his wife, This is great. I'm going down to see a studio at the invitation of the head of the studio. I don't know anything about Hollywood, so I'll go down and I'll be back tomorrow night. So Fowler went down to Burbank and was taken to Walt's office. They spoke for about 15 minutes. Then Walt was called to see the morning rushes. So he said, "'Make yourself at home. I'll be back shortly. And if you want anything, press the button, and someone will get it for you— coffee, orange juice, Walt Street Journal, and so forth.'" After 10 or 15 minutes, one of Walt's secretaries came into the office and asked, "'Your name's Joe Fowler?' "'Yes,' replied Fowler. "'Come with me,' she said. They walked down the corridor, and she said, "'Here's your office.'" And here's an office on the other side of the corridor for the contractors you want to talk to about building Disneyland. Three weeks went by before Walt discussed his salary and other benefits. Fowler worked for the Disney company for 25 years and loved it. Roy Disney used to say that Fowler was the longest temporary employee they ever had.
1: (laughs) That's insane.
0: I know. (laughs) It's just funny how things moved in those days with Walt. (laughs)
1: Uh, absolutely and just I mean again we time and time we hear these stories about Walt that just really impress you with it and here's an admiral who just obviously was captivated by it and went along with it even though it's completely ridiculous but just amazing I love these stories
0: I know and knowing these stories you can understand how major attractions that today takes years to build, Walt could get done sometimes in under a year. Yeah. You know, know, because he he made decisions and he made them immediately. A lot of times before letting the person affected know the decision was made and they always went along with it. Yeah. Because they were so impressed by him.
1: And Disney could use a little bit more of that today still.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, well, a couple of days later, Walt visited Fowler's office and told him, Now look, I will try to have ideas, and you make the engineering a reality out of it. You can't do it? Tell me. That's all. There were two or three times Fowler, Joe Fowler had to tell Walt he couldn't do it. And Fowler said when this happened, he, meaning Walt, would have some excuse why we couldn't and forget about it. Move on to something else. Great guy. Great guy. Now, if you've been to Disneyland, you may have come across Fowler's Harbor on the Rivers of America. Fowler had to convince Walt that if they were going to have big ships on the river, they would need a dry dock for when the boats needed repair. Now, Walt disliked the extra expense of having that part of the river torn out. For a while, Walt referred to it as Joe's Ditch and Walt came to recognize the importance of having this dry dock for maintaining ships and officially named it Fowler's Harbor. There was a little fish house by the harbor which Walt named Marie's Lobster House. and Marie was the name of Joe Fowler's wife. Hmm. (laughs) Looking back at the construction of Disneyland, Fowler said, Walt and Roy were a great team because whereas Walt would never compromise with perfection, or a complete situation that he wanted himself, as he saw it. He was the first to criticize spending money that you d- that you didn't get your returns on. He was very, very definite on that. When I started building Disneyland, I didn't know a damn thing about what we were getting into. In July, I had a budget of four and a half million. That was before we had any plans at all. And in September, it went up to seven. And in November, we talked eleven. From the day the first orange tree was pulled up to opening day, Joe Fowler got Disneyland built in 11 months. How long did it take that parking garage in Disney Springs to be built, Craig? It
1: uh, <laughs> took so long, I don't even remember. And that's only the first one. They're <laughs> still working on the, uh, the second one. that's coming. Um, it's... You know the only thing that I can really even compare that to, and it's not a comparison, but over at Universal in in uh, at Universal Studios Florida, their Transformers ride took about uh, a total of right around eleven to twelve months to completely finish the entire attraction, and that the only reason they were able to do that is because it was the the third time that the attraction was being built. So they were already very experienced in it. So it's just mind-blowing still that it this can be accomplished in such a short time. And we're going to have to wait years for Star Wars.
0: I know. Yeah. Yeah. And, and a lot of the infrastructure is already there. Yeah. Because they're building in a park. This was, you know, middle of orange groves. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. So a month before Disneyland was scheduled to open its gates, C.V. Wood met with Fowler and said, Joe, we might as just as well postpone it till September. We're not going to make it. And Fowler responded, Woody, we have to make it. Of course, I'd been indoctrinated during the war. I had been working right under limits. I had 25 private shipyards by doggy, and we had to make dates. There wasn't any two ways about it. That was probably the greatest thing in the world, that we opened in July. If we had waited till until September when the crowds sloughed off and so forth, we might never have gotten it off the ground. During the 1959 expansion of Tomorrowland that included the addition of the monorail, the submarine voyage, and the Matterhorn, Walt Disney contacted Fowler and asked him to come into the office on Saturday to meet with officials from the Navy who wanted to sponsor the submarine. And Fowler recalled, Walt was hesitant and I was damn certain he didn't want them because I knew what happened. They put any money into it, we'd lose our control. Fowler met with the Navy officials in the yard at the park that Saturday. After all three attractions had opened, Fowler was at the studio when Walt stopped him and said, Joe, is it convenient for you to come up to the office about four o'clock this afternoon? Fowler replied, why surely. Fowler went to Walt's office promptly at 4 p.m. and was greeted by Dick Irvine, Bill Cottrell, Bill Martin, and Walt. Walt said, Joe... You know, we've had quite a battle on our hands here, but we won. Walt handed Fowler a plaque with a painting of Fowler in a cocked hat as the commander-in-chief of the Disneyland Navy. But, Walt said, don't forget that I am still the overall secretary of defense. (laughs) (laughs) So, when the submarine attraction was under construction... Walt came in and saw the plastic fish being made for molds for the underwater scenes. Fowler got to talking with Walt about fishing and said he knew about a wonderful place to fish in Baja, California. Joe suggested they take the company plane down there and catch a marlin, and it would make a wonderful model for the submarine voyage. Fowler went on to say how they could wrap the fish in oilcloth and lay it on the aisle and fly back to Burbank. Walt thought that was a good idea. About three days later, Fowler received word from Lily and Disney through designer Emil Curry. By the way, Lily wants you to know if you, Joe Fowler, put a stinking fish in that goddamn plane, she'll never ride in it. (laughs) (laughs) As you probably guessed... Fowler and Walt never flew to Baja to catch that Marlin.
1: <laughs> oh, that's a great side of Lillian Disney that I never expected to hear. Uh-huh.
0: I know. I mean, because, you know, you hear, and I think we may have mentioned it when we talked about Roy, uh, you know, that R- R- Roy said Lillian was su- complimented Walt so well because she let him know what. She let him know that whatever he wanted to do was pretty much okay. Yeah. She was okay with it. But she actually was a very strong woman. Oh, yeah. And and you sort of had to be. You know, I think to deal with Walt. I mean, when he wanted to build the Carolwood Express in the backyard, and it was going to ruin her um, her flower beds. I mean, Walt had to draw up a right of way contract and everything, <laughs> uh, and an agreement that the every it wouldn't harm the flower beds uh, or that they'd be restored.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, she could yeah. only she could only be one of two ways to really deal with them. She could. Stand her ground or she could just give in to absolutely everything and be like that. But it's fun to hear that uh, she she does stand her ground. Um, Yes. Yes, she did. Very empowering.
0: (laughs) Now, although Walt Disney didn't live long enough for the groundbreaking of the Florida project, he and Joe Fowler traveled all over the property in a jeep. And Fowler remembered, oh, he loved it. He wanted to see how it would be, the appearance, the sight of the Magic Kingdom, from the top of the Contemporary Hotel. So we got him the biggest crane in Florida, and the two of us got in a bucket, and they hoisted us straight up to simulate the place of the lounge. I was up in the air, hanging on, hoping to get down, and he was an enthusiastic old fool.
1: Oh, that scares (laughs) me, just thinking about it. Yeah. But Ugh.
0: I can just see Walt delighted up there, pointing out to, to, to Admiral Fowler, and that's where the castle is going to be, and that's where the, the Rivers of America
1: is going to yeah. be, and that's you, you know. So yeah, it's one of those moments where only they know about it. It's yeah. Cool. <laughs> um,
0: so Fowler recalls the last day he spoke with Walt. He was a remarkable man. You know, the day before he died, I was operating Disneyland as well as Wed. And they said, Joe, can you come up to the studio? Walt wants to see you. Walt was in the hospital right off the studio, and he was in a reclining bed, and he had cancer. He had been reviewing for two hours all that we had planned, even Epcot. And to this day, it was almost built exactly the same as he planned. He died the next day. He was planning right up to the very end, all hours till he passed away. What a man. What a man. During Walt Disney World's construction, Fowler held multiple titles in Walt Disney Productions. He was Walt Disney's production's senior vice president of engineering and construction, chairman of the board for WED Enterprises, which is now Imagineering, and construction director for Disney's Buena Vista Construction Company.
1: All while being retired.
0: (laughs) Yes, yes, in his 70s.
1: (laughs) You cannot forget it. That's the most important part of this. (laughs) Yes.
0: In later years, Fowler talked about some of the engineering challenges he encountered in building Walt Disney World. They, referring to the engineering, were very different from anything that we had done before. When I built Disneyland, Disneyland is on sand, and our problem there was keeping water in the river we had to find a special lining of clay which hadn't been used before and which worked out very satisfactorily. But in Florida, we had water four feet under the surface of the earth in that particular area, channeled off swamp. So it was quite different. And then, of course, we went to the extent of drill testing every area where we'd have buildings or the monorail or weights superimposed on the earth, which was damn expensive. I suppose we spent 3 or $4 million just testing, but we couldn't afford to do otherwise. You know, Florida has been noted for its areas where unexpectedly there'll be a sink, so we engineered the thing thoroughly and tested it out. As far as compacting, which we did in all our areas, getting the compression to 95%, compactors hadn't been heard of in Florida, and the contractors couldn't understand it, but we insisted upon it. The result is that Disney World is built to last against any sinking or hurricanes or whatnot. Joe Fowler retired from the Disney company in 1978 and passed away on December 3rd, 1993 at the age of 99. So I think that that retirement of his kept them going much longer.
1: Oh, absolutely. But (laughs) it's kind of, I mean, good for him that, Even after he was allowed to second retire, he still made another 21 years after that. That's right. What a life.
0: (laughs) Now, in honor of his many years of service to the Walt Disney Corporation, a riverboat in Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom was named the Admiral Fowler. During a rehab of the boat, it was dropped as a crane was lowering the boat onto blocks. The damage was deemed too severe to repair, so the Admiral Fowler was savaged for its parts. In 1999, six years after the passing of Admiral Fowler, the green-paneled Magic Kingdom 1 ferryboat that transports guests across the Seven Seas Lagoon to the Magic Kingdom was renamed the Admiral Fowler. Joe Fowler was named a Disney legend in 1990. Interestingly, he has not yet been honored with a window on Main Street. We'll hear more about Admiral Joe Fowler's remarkable achievements during the construction of Walt Disney World in future episodes of Connecting with Walt. Yes. Huh. So I, he, he's the only one that, uh, out of the um, builders that doesn't have a window on Main Street. I was really shocked.
1: Yeah, it's, <clears throat> it seems like an oversight it does. Well, it doesn't mm-hmm. seem... It, it is an oversight. <laughs> yeah. But, no, what, a, what an incredible, incredible person in Disney history. And, uh, no, it, it is... I, I am happy that his name is still on one of the ferry ships. Uh, and that, you know, as as long as that one's running on a daily basis, even though people may not know what it's named for know his story which we you're doing a great job of trying to get out there he, even if they don't know it, it the legacy is still living on every time it goes back and enforced across there taking people to the park and but then again there's still two other ships and uh two other people in the story that we have today so that's right
0: yeah, our, our, next, our next Disney legend we're going to talk about, who helped build Walt Disney World, is Major General William E. Joe Potter. And the general was born in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, on July 17th, 1905. And during World War II, Potter directed logistical planning for the invasion of northern France, a transportation operation nicknamed Red Ball Express. After the war, he served in Washington, D.C. as assistant chief of engineers for civil works and special projects. In 1956, President Dwight D. Eisenhower appointed Potter to serve as governor of the Panama Canal Zone. And Potter was responsible for governing a community of more than 40,000 people, as well as services including education, military, public health, medical care, fire and police protection, and the postal system. At the end of his tenure as governor, and after 38 years with the United States Army, Potter retired as Army Major General in 1960. And in his long career, he had been decorated with a Distinguished Service Medal, the Legion of Merit, the Bronze Star, and the Croix de Guerre. Soon after his retirement... He became executive vice president of the 1964-65 New York World's Fair and was responsible for handling the construction of the federal and state attractions. These included 26 state pavilions and the $17 million United States pavilions. So, you know, a nice little job, part-time retirement job. (laughs) Yeah, of course.
1: course. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, goodness. Yeah.
0: During the World's Fair, Joe Potter met Walt Disney, who had provided attractions for four pavilions at the fair. Walt was immediately impressed with Potter and wanted him on his team for the Florida Project to oversee the early construction phases of the project. So Potter observed that Walt Disney and Robert Moses, who was the president of the New York World's Fair, were alike. They despised people with reluctance or a negative attitude. They were tougher than hell. They had goals that defied problems, such as the lack of money, and they were both geniuses. Potter also said of Walt Disney, It didn't take you long to realize that Walt was a beginner of things, not a finisher. Potter remembered traveling with Moses to Burbank. Around 1962 or 63, Moses and I went to the studios to look at a slide presentation of the Hall of Presidents presented by Jack Sayers, who was the vice president of corporate sponsorships. Then we put Walt in touch with the state of Illinois, but that person was more interested in saving dollars by cutting down the number of presidents, and they ended up with just Lincoln. This is a little different from the the accepted story, the one I shared when I taught on the Disneyland show, when I talked about the World's Fair, in that uh, the state of Illinois waited so long before they really uh, voted the money for the pavilion that the only time that Walt had was just enough time to build the one figure, even though he had originally wanted to build what we now know is the Hall of Presidents.
1: Yeah, I want to say I've heard that somewhere else before, too, besides your segment, obviously. I, I, I want to say it was even touched upon whenever uh, we were at the Destination D event yeah. this past time. Or, because there, wow, or, it's been a while now, but yeah, last yeah, ori-
0: Originally, what became the Hall of Presidents was going to be on Liberty Street behind yes. Disneyland's Main Street USA. One uh, day, maybe. I I don't think so.
1: (laughs) Please. I want Edison Square.
0: (laughs) Oh, I would love Edison Square. Um, Potter also recalled the day he was hired by Walt Disney. Around the end of 1964, Sayers asked me if I'd like to work for Disney. In January 1965, I went to California and saw Card Walker, Don Tatum, Joe Fowler, and Roy Disney. Later, I heard that Walt was told by Roy... What the hell do you want a goddamn general in the outfit for? Roy had not been consulted. It was one of the few times when Walt didn't consult Roy. I was on Walt's personal payroll. January 1st, 1966 would mark the end of my contract for the fair. Having built the fair, I didn't want to tear it down. I asked Walt, When do you want me to join? He said, Whenever Mr. Moses will let you go. I told Moses about the deal and he let me leave on September 1st. I joined Disney on September 27th, 1965. I had my office opposite Walt's corridor. Now we've got to, when, when we go to the studio, Craig, someday, we've got to look for all these places.
1: Yeah, exactly. We need to start <laughs> uh, mapping everything out and yeah. planning on when we can break away from our group and yes. actually... Uh, actually start finding all these <laughs> hidden places. Oh, my gosh, that's tomorrow. At this yes, point, that we will be doing
0: it that. Is. It is. a Surprise. <laughs>
1: yeah, <laughs> it's insane.
0: Potter immediately got to work on the Florida Project. At the end of October, he and Disney's general counsel, Robert Foster, traveled to Florida to view the site for the Florida Project. Uh, Moses and Foster viewed the property by helicopter and walked over the ground. Potter was still in Florida on Sunday, October 1st, when the news broke that Disney was the mystery company purchasing the land in central Florida. Potter recalled this event. We were under assumed names, and I called the company from a phone booth in order not to be overheard. The premature news hurt us in 200 or 300 acres, where the prices went up from $183 before the news to to $1,000 after. Potter was involved in the land purchases for Florida and worked to establish the Reedy Creek Improvement District, which we talked about in an earlier episode of Connecting with Walt. Yes. And immediately after the news about the Florida project was announced, Walt formed a planning group, Marvin Davis, Walt, and Joe Potter. And said Potter, Marvin had a great knack for putting Walt's ideas into form. Potter did have one demand – One of the things I insisted on was to have a room with 16-foot walls at WED. I was tired of making presentations on 8-foot walls. There were only three keys to that room, Marvin's, Walt's, and mine. Walt didn't want a committee. Walt then gave Potter another critical assignment for the Florida project. During the planning process, Walt told me to find out what the industry was thinking about the future. He asked, what's going on in the labs? Letters were sent to the 500 biggest corporations. We visited 100 industries, including the Ford Foundation, which was asked to consult on education. Walt went to Westinghouse in Pittsburgh during three days and saw the magnet devices for the rapid transit system. Potter talked about a time he saw Walt lose his temper in a planning meeting. Walt was mad because a finance guy was present. Walt said to the finance man, what the hell are you doing here? He made him leave. He wanted creative people there only. I wasn't creative, but I was his honcho, the man who got things done. (laughs) However, despite being Walt's honcho, even he did not escape Walt's temper. Potter remembered that day. We spent half a day discussing the shape of the Bay Area, and I showed Walt that it could be extended, but I added it would cost $1.5 million. He exploded. God damn it, Potter. Why do you waste time talking about unimportant matters? For 10 days, he wouldn't talk to me when passing me in the hall. Then on Friday, I got a call from Tommy Wilk, who's one of um, Walt's secretaries, Walt would like to have you come over at four and chat a while. Walt talked about people in the company, how he met them, and what contributions they made. Tommy called me again on Monday, and we talked again. I said, you know me, I can't change my skin. I am degeneralized. Moses did that for me. You will just have to accept me as I am. Walt said, I couldn't sleep Friday night. I kept asking myself, why in the hell do I kick Potter around like that? (laughs) Uh. So Walt researched the smallest of details for his Epcot City of the Future. For instance, Walt, Lillian, Jack Sayers, and Joe Fowler went on a trip to study shopping centers. Walt's purpose was to watch the people in each shopping center to determine if and how they held families together. Everything Walt did in his life he did with the goal of bringing families together in shared experiences. Lo- Walt loved and respected children. When Potter and his wife visited Walt and Lillian at their home and brought all their children and grandchildren with them, Potter said all of Walt's attention was on the children and grandchildren, not on him and his wife. Potter did the hiring for the Florida's Project's building department. And no one in Orange County had examined plans for complicated buildings, such as a castle, or experience building them. If the building plans were too complicated, Potter would hire experts on a short-term basis to inspect the building structurally.
1: I can't believe that no one in Orange County (laughs) had ever examined those kind of plans.
0: I know. I well, know.
1: <laughs> Could've swore that castles were just a, a typical thing here, uh, you know, now that we do have two castles and well then again I guess out in California you guys have have two castles now too, so uh, that, Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah, we have we have Hogwarts. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so um well we have Hearst Castle. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you're not as convinced with that one yeah. 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 <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, well William Dial former chairman of Sun Bank met Potter shortly after he was given the assignment in Orlando I guess he single handedly handled the relationship between the community, community and Disney Dial said to Potter he heard complaints and he handled them he was always conducting tours he kept the community fully informed when the place was being built. Potter guided the enormous task of transforming 300 acres of Florida land into the Magic Kingdom whilst preserving the area's natural ecology and beauty and the construction of the whole infrastructure of the Magic Kingdom, including underground sewer, power, and water treatment plants that were considered revolutionary at the time. He also developed... D- drainage canals for the entire property as flood control which were known as Joe's ditches. A Potter was also responsible for constructing the underground utility tunnels known as utilidors.
1: Yes, which is kind of everyone every big massive Disney World fan always has a dream of going down and seeing what the utilidors are. Uh you know, it's it's one of the greatest Lore behind Disney World, and then you you get down there and you find out that it's not as enchanting as everything is up above ground. It, but
0: it's a it's a lot of corridors. Yeah, um, and is. I've been down there. Now, what I like is how they have the direction directional signs, and so I'm trying to figure. That's when you really get an idea for how large they are when they you realize what land you're you know what land you're under. Oh and, yeah. And, and and the direct routes and then suddenly you turn this way you're under a completely different land
1: oh absolutely no whenever I, I've only been down there once and that was during my uh, during my traditions training mm-hmm. and uh, they they take you in the back way and well the, the way to get in and uh, then we had to go from where the bus dropped us off right as soon as we got into the Utilidors and then walk all the way to Main Street. And I'm pretty sure, looking back onto it, it was somewhat of a straight shot. I know we did have to go around uh, one or two different ways just because uh, little things were happening and they needed to divert our entire crowd around. But um, while not clean, calm, friendly down there, just brilliant design. Uh, Oh,
0: and, and massive
1: Yes. Yeah. Like
0: when you get into food storage areas and stuff, they're huge.
1: Yeah, it's not. These aren't. <laughs> you you immediately think tunnels, and you kind of get in that perception of it's. You're like walking down through bunker tunnels or something like that. No, no not at very, all. Very, very expansive. Just
0: oh, there's like underground warehouses.
1: Yeah, and no, all that I there. So.
0: But I I got confused over. Okay, what does this color mean? Because they have the colors all, you know, so you know what land you, you follow this color stripe and it'll take you here and there. I couldn't remember what all the colors were, even though they do have signs periodically (laughs) that uh,
1: remind you. My sister worked down there for quite some time while she was at, uh, while she was working at the Bippity Boppity Boutique and God bless her for being able to figure it all out. (laughs) Yeah, yeah.
0: So, well, an engineer, Potter was determined to build an infrastructure for Disney World, including underground sewer power and water treatment plants, which many civic leaders termed impractical and futuristic, which is sort of the whole idea, I guess. Um, I went out and got three Cracker Jack College professors to show me how to do it, Potter joked in an interview about a year before he passed. And then I got me another professor to help put the utilities underground. His dedication to the Disney project helped him prevail against strikes and other setbacks that threatened the park's opening on October 1st, 1971. In 1968, facing a strike by equipment operators seeking to unionize, Potter said, Only the weather can keep us from getting back on schedule at this time. He was inducted as a Disney legend in 1997, and General Joe Potter passed away on December 5th, 1988. Dick Nunes, who was the president of Walt Disney Attractions at the time of Potter's passing, said Walt Disney World would not exist were it not for Potter's ingenuity and dedication. He was a man Walt Disney was very fond of, Nunes said. Without a Joe Potter there would be no Walt Disney World today. He was so highly regarded by the Disney Company for his many accomplishments that one of the ferries transporting Walt Disney World guests across the Seven Seas Lagoon to the Magic Kingdom, originally named the Kingdom Queen and has blue panels, was rechristened the General Joe Potter to honor his contributions in the construction of Walt Disney World. A window above the confectionery on the Magic Kingdom's Main Street, USA is dedicated to Joe Potter. It reads, General Joe's building permits licensed in Florida, General Joe Potter raconteur. Most of the quotes I shared from Joe Potter came from two interviews he had with Disney biographer Bob Thomas in 1973. In that interview, Potter said, After Walt's death, Roy decided they wouldn't bring in an outsider. Roy got to know Wed and turned the job over to Dick Irvine. I wondered if Dick had been a co-pilot for too long, but he hadn't. He became tough, hard, and strong.
1: Uh, And (laughs) before we move on to Richard Irvine, uh, Mm -hmm. I I think it's one other thing that I found uh, from time to time – especially whenever you're, you're sending me the scripts, everything we're going to cover. Obviously, I try to do a little bit of my own research, too. And a lot of times, it always takes me to Orlando Sentinel articles. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it goes all the way back. And uh, so I, I stumbled upon his obituary, too. And one of the, the coolest things I found from that came from uh, an, another person involved in Sunbank, I, I can't pronounce his name. His last name's Duncan, but uh, mm-hmm. he said Joe Potter was Mr. Disney to the natives of, of Orlando. He was the bridge between the Orlando community and Disney. And, you know, that just, that right there too says it again how critically important he was to all of this.
0: Um, Absolutely.
1: Just, yeah. Just another incredible person, but, you know, well, are we going to vote on the end who we think is the most important <laughs> of the three?
0: Well, well, and again, it, he built the the the, Dis, the Walt Disney World infrastructure and and Magic Kingdom in his retirement years. Yeah. again, just it's just flabbergasting. Yeah, you know?
1: and I just I wonder if he never. Well, obviously, he, he would have never popped up on Walt Disney's radar if it wasn't for the 64 World's Fair. But it, it's just the Epcot that we have today, obviously, isn't the, the Epcot that Walt wanted us to have. But I wonder how much of that then really was heavily influenced through, through Potter, just since it, was, it seems to be very similar to the World's Fair that, that he helped Yes. Yeah.
0: And and it was, and for a long time, the Disney, Walt Disney Productions intended to build the city. Mm -hmm. And so as I researched and reviewed, you know, these three men, it was, there was a lot on just how they continued the progress on um, working on Epcot City. I mean, Marty Scalar did. I mean, everybody did. So they didn't give up that dream. You know, quickly, um, you know, and and some have never given up on it.
1: <laughs> hey, at this point, if they don't do something with future World soon, uh, besides just giving us soaring around the world, then they're getting to the point where you might as well just tear the whole thing down and start over again. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, so. But yeah, so yes, um, General Potter has given us our introduction to Richard Irvine. And Richard Irvine was born on April fifth, 1910, in Salt Lake City. He moved to Los Angeles in 1922 with his father, Dr. A. Ray Irvine, to open his own ophthalmic practice. Irvine, though, would not follow in his father's footsteps. He attended Stanford University and the University of Southern California, uh, followed by professional training in the artistic field at the Chouinard Art Institute. Um, Irvine had an exceptional talent for color and design and entered the motion picture industry in the 1930s as an art director and later earned an Academy Award nomination for his art direction on the United Artists film Sundown. Now, I know you're a, a film buff, um, Craig, so if you have any comments on any of these films or anything, you know, jump right
1: in. Absolutely. So.
0: Um, during World War II, Irvine was hired by the Walt Disney Studio as the art director for Victory Through Air Power* and The Three Caballeros, which was noteworthy for combining live action with animation. And the Disney Studios was financially struggling after the end of w- the war, and film production was slowed down, resulting in Irvine being let go. So Irvine went to 20th Century Fox, where he was art director for Uh, the beloved Miracle on 34th Street in 1947, the Brazier doubloon in 1947, um, Apartment for Peggy in 1948, Mr. Belvedere Goes to College in 1949, Follow the Sun in 1951, Don't Bother to Knock in 1952, and O. Henry's Full House in 1952, amongst others and at the time these were some really well respected and great films
1: oh yeah so. no and i think every disney fan now that listens to this will now have a greater appreciation for miracle on 34th street the next time uh, they watch it cuz now you can kind of say it's slightly a disney movie That's that right. involves That's christmas right. we'll we'll always find an excuse to <laughs> to say it's related to disney <laughs>
0: Now, in the 1950s, Walt Disney was seriously beginning his planning of a theme park, and Walt consulted with architects who told him to use his motion picture people because they really understand what he wants to do a lot better than architects will. So Walt contacted a few studios until he spoke with Lyle Wheeler of 20th Century Fox. And Wheeler recommended a person with an architectural background from USC who also studied at Chenard and was the perfect combination of architect and artist, Dick Irvine. (laughs) Walt replied, well, I know him. I worked with him on a few films during the war. (laughs) So in an interview with Richard Hubler in 1968, Irvine said he, meaning Walt, Already had the stagecoaches built. He had the little man on display. He had a little concept sketch of a little park done over there for the studio, which was what they called Little Man. Mm-hmm. When Walt hired Irvine, he assigned Irvine to be his liaison at the architectural firm Piera and Luckman, who had been retained as architects for Disneyland. This firm was looking at a site in Palos Verdes and was doing a contour of the map. Walt went to look at what they were working on, and Walt decided if his ideas were going to get properly developed, he should start his own staff before going to an architect. should start with his own staff before going to an architect. And Irvine was eventually put in charge of the team of designers, artists, architects and engineers planning and developing Disneyland. Walt relied on Irvine to find the right people and resources to make his visions a reality. And Irvine recalled working with Walt. Every time he'd come over to WED, he'd come over to my office first and sit down and have a cup of coffee and explain things that he wanted. And he would use me to try and get new talent for him. Sort of a casting director, I guess. Dick and Walt both had experience with the concept of storytelling in a real place and experience in filmmaking. So the process of designing Disneyland was really no different than the development of an animated feature. So Irvine explained the process. The way we'd work is that we would get together at a shirt sleeve session and kick ideas around for, from four hours to six hours to all day. We used to have storyboards and we would make a list of ideas and concepts. Nothing was really pinned down except that what would people need? What would they do? What kind of entertainment would they have? All the needs for the public that would have to be contemplated going into this park. We would write our ideas out on squares of paper, put them up on a board, and Walt come down in the afternoon and sit there and look at them and juggle them around. And eventually it evolved. Imagineer and Disney legend Bob Gurris said of Irvine, he was a crucial guy and he understood the big picture instantaneously. He never explained anything to anybody. <laughs> but it was like whatever Walt started to say Dick understood it instantly and could read back to Walt what's going to work, what's not going to work.
1: Yeah, and I mean that just that a lot of that impact's going to come from uh being an art director. I mean, in that role, you're really you're you're the one who is making sure that the theme really, really stays all together in terms of a visual sense. Mm-hmm. And, um, it's, you know, it, it's one of those things, uh, in talking about building a theme park, like we did way back when, whenever we learned about, uh, what it goes into being a theme park designer. Uh, it's just, it, it's one of those roles that you, you wouldn't really think that an art director would have that much of an influence, but it, in a way may, they really are extremely crucial to something like that. Oh, whenever you're, yeah. whenever you're looking towards filmmakers to actually put something together like this.
0: Oh, absolutely! And now that I think this is standard practice. Oh, okay. for theme parks, for films, for you know anything, yeah, it has to be. Mm-hmm. Now, after Disneyland opened, the primary role of Irvine had it was interpreting Walt's vision and plans for the growing park. Most of their discussions took place during walks through Disneyland. When remembering these walks, Irvine said, Saturday morning would get in there early. Later on, we started going on Monday and Tuesday when nobody was in the park. And, and folks may find this hard to believe, but until 1985, Disneyland was closed Mondays and Tuesdays. So maintenance could be done in the park out of sight of guests.
1: I just, you know, it, it's so funny. To think about that, even nowadays, whenever uh, people are complaining about Disney nickeling, diming everyone for for every penny they could possibly do. But at one point in time, they weren't open two days of the week. Right. Such a missed opportunity for profit.
0: I know. And and Walt didn't want the routine maintenance visible. Yeah. That, That now, because the parks are open every day and so long, they can't avoid it.
1: Yeah. And that's, you know, I... I know it is essentially unavoidable, but that's one of the things that I, I do have to applaud universal because I think they kind of took that mindset going in and with it that, uh, a lot of their rides don't ever go down for this kind of, uh, work and upkeep and maintenance and, and really the only things that I'd ever do are the water attractions just because, uh, it's obviously working with water. It's, it's a whole different game. So, uh, at least in a way, uh, Universal is kind of carried on that maintenance would never happen uh, during during working hours, whenever possible.
0: Mm-hmm. I like that. Yeah, me too. <laughs> so- so so Irv, Irvine uh, uh, continued, um, Walt used to get annoyed at the public coming up and wanting his autograph. But of course, he was very gracious. He'd pre-write his notes and have them stuffed in his pocket with Walt Disney on it. So if a kid wanted an autograph, he'd say, Here, take it and give it to them. Irvine continued to be in charge of the planning and design of all the new attractions in Disneyland and the four Disney attractions underdeveloped for the New York World's Fair. On Walt's last day in the studio, Irvine had lunch in a commissary with Walt, Joe Fowler, and Mel Melton of WED. Walt said, see, I can't put my arms up, and told him he had his lung taken out. And the doctor said he could only visit and not talk business. Then Walt turned to Joe Fowler and said, what's wrong with the submarine ride? When will we get it back working? <laughs> During the conversation, Irvine told Walt that they had some sketches of Mary Blair's murals for the Tomorrowland rebuild, and Mark Davis had some wonderful ideas for the bear band. At the end of lunch, Walt asked if Irvine would drive him over to WED. On the way, Irvine and Walt talked about the Tomorrowland building finishes and Mary Blair's murals. Wed was looking for maintenance-free materials, and Irvine was recommending to use tile in the mural. Walt said, good, that's the way to go. Walt looked over Mark's concept art and chatted with Mark. Walt was disappointed to hear the pirate audio-animatronic figures had been taken down for some minor adjustments. Walt did look at the mock-up that was set up for the Rocket to the Moon attraction pre-show and discussed his ideas for it. Then he asked Irvine to take him back to the studio. Irvine recalls, so I took him back. As they came upon the studio gate, someone put their head in the window and said, I'm sorry that you've been sick, Walt. I'm glad to see you back, or something like that. And Walt said afterward, I don't want anyone to ask me how I feel. That was typical. He never wanted to think of himself, I think, in relation to people that felt sorry for him or anything like that. I dropped him off and he said, I'm going to Palm Springs for the week and I'm going to have some checkups and then I'll be back to see you. That was the last time I saw him. Following Walt's passing, Roy O. Disney gave Irvine the primary responsibility for the master planning, design, and show development of Walt Disney World. In July 1967, Irvine was appointed executive vice president and chief operations officer of WED Enterprises. Irvine and Roy Disney worked to adhere to the plan and vision Walt had for the Florida project, but encountered numerous challenges and plan changes. Without Walt, Irvine had to make decisions that might not have been the same as Walt would have made, but rather worked to make decisions the way Walt would have made them. In a 1973 interview with Bob Thomas, Irvine said, I often wonder what would have been done differently if Walt had been alive. You know darn well it would have been entirely different from what we did do. Before his passing, Walt had charged Marvin Davis to gather some information and make some initial designs for his concept of Epcot. Despite Davis's immense skill and talent, Walt knew Davis couldn't work it through to the final version by himself, whilst also overseeing all the ancillary and resort amenities, including a new and larger Magic Kingdom. So Walt pushed to have Wed continue to develop the theme park, and Walt would develop another group to work on his Epcot concept. So when the time came to design the hotels for Walt Disney World, Irvine contacted Wilson Beckett, who had worked with Walt in designing the New York World's Fair pavilions for Ford and General Electric. Beckett understood Walt, Walt's ideas, and Walt's way of working. So Roy supported Irvine in this decision because he also understood they couldn't do it all and needed to recruit someone with expertise. Roy Disney ultimately canceled Walt Disney's Epcot City and shelved the original plans for the Florida project, then selected Irvine to design a new master plan for a vacation kingdom, a plan that was mostly followed up until the mid-1980s.
1: I can't imagine whatever changed in the mid-1980s to to set that all astray.
0: I, I think we started to see the
1: original designers retire. Yeah, that probably has a little little bit to add in there and then uh Yeah and then uh, and then good Ron old Michael Miller. Eisner. Yeah. Ron
0: Miller left and yeah. Michael Eisner came in. Yeah,
1: yeah. Sounds about well, right. <laughs> I, I
0: should say Ron Miller was um asked to leave.
1: Yeah. No so. let's not try to church it up here. No, no.
0: Um, Being an alumnus of the Chenard Art Institute, Irvine had great interest in Walt's California Institute of the Arts project. Um, Irvine said, we we started out in WED, Walt had a city of arts concept, a community of the arts, where the students would not only have a lot of motivation, they would see the practical experience and application, as well as all the theory. We laid out preliminary ideas of what Walt's City of Arts might be in relationship to the art school, the residences, etc. Again, thinking of a place where the public and the students could be exposed to each other. Richard Irvine and his wife Anne worked to form the Disney Artists for Cal Arts, whose annual art show raised substantial funds for scholarships and student loans for Cal Arts. Richard Irvine retired from Wed Enterprises in 1973 due to a heart condition, and after a lengthy illness, Irvine passed away on March 30th, 1976. Not only does Irvine's legacy live on in his designs and development of Disneyland and Walt Disney World, nine of Irvine's ten children went on to work for the Walt Disney Company. His daughter, Maggie Irvine Elliott, was senior vice president of creative administration for Walt Disney Imagineering until her retirement in 1994. His daughter-in-law is noted Imagineer Kim Thomas Irvine. Said Maggie Irvine Elliott of her father, Unfortunately, my father never got to see Walt Disney World open due to a long illness, which was really sad but lots of people gave him wonderful reports on how well it did. Of course, his first love was Disneyland. Strictly Disneyland, Richard Irvine once said. As a matter of fact, when I went to work for Walt on Disneyland, that was it. I left the motion picture business. I never went back to it, never regretted it either. The Magic Kingdom's second paddle wheel steamboat The Richard F. Irvine was named in his honor until it was rechristened Liberty Bell in 1996. Subsequently, one of the ferries transporting guests across the Seven Seas Lagoon to the the Magic Kingdom, too, with red panels, was rechristened Richard F. Irvine in honor of Irvine's contributions to making Walt Disney World a reality. Richard Irvine has been honored on windows in both Disneyland and the Magic Kingdom. In Disneyland, above the Disney Gallery, there is a window bearing the names of Richard Irvine and Marvin Davis for their work in designing and planning Disneyland. In the Magic Kingdom, above the Plaza Restaurant, there is a window reading, Walter E. Disney, Graduate of Design and Master Planning, Instructors Howard Brummett, Marvin Davis, Fred Hope. Headmaster, Richard Irvine. Dean of Design, John Hench. Instructors, Vic Green, Bill Martin, Chuck Mile. All of these men are honored for their work in designing and planning various areas of Walt Disney World. Additionally, Richard Irvine's father, Alexander Irvine, M.D., is honored with a window above Disneyland's Baby Care Center. Dr. Irvine was Walt's personal eye doctor and the founder of the um, Danny Art Institute at the University of Southern California. Richard Irvine was inducted as a Disney legend in 1990.
1: But where's the love for Richard Irvine's wife? Yeah, I know, they had
0: everyone else in there. Yeah, well. <laughs> They really, with ten children, <laughs> she should have been in that baby care center somewhere on one of those windows. Exactly. <laughs> uh, uh, so that brings us to the end of our first um, Disney Legends installment on connecting with Walt.
1: Yeah, so, and we knocked three out, so yeah, it's, we did. It's doing good.
0: <laughs> well, you couldn't talk about one without the other two.
1: Very true. No, and, it's it, it's, and it seemed like uh Another good kicking off point uh, whenever we discuss this one since uh, you know we are getting rapidly closer and closer to diving in deep with the construction of Disney world um you know to, to start with the such three important people in all of it and not only uh, not only were they important but then also being on all the the three ships it just it just all fit together so well.
0: Right, right, so now people will know who they're riding, yes, when they cross the seven Seas lagoon.
1: and if you're ever riding across and you're looking around and you feel like people aren't quite sure of what's happening or uh, if you just want to be bothering people, now you have all the stories to let them know, and you know, you only have five minutes to to get out mm-hmm. the story for each right. ship, but That's I'm right. sure yeah. you'll be able to manage. That's right. You can dazzle them with your brilliance. Did you know? (laughs) Yes. And you know, if if you don't feel like doing it then just pass pass this episode along and That's right. (laughs) Add us some more listeners. (laughs)
0: That would be great. <laughs> yep. Now, now, many books, films, articles, interviews, and lectures were sourced for this episode of Connecting with Walt, including the book series Walt People, ta- Talking Disney with the Artists Who Knew Him, edited by D.D.A. Gez. Walt Disney's Imagineering Legends and the Genesis of the Disney Theme Park by Jeff Curdy, And Main Street Windows, a complete guide to Disney's whimsical tributes by Jeff Heimbuch. Um, Craig, we have something very special planned for our connecting with Walton listeners on the next episode. We sort of gave them a hint, but do you do you want to give them any other hints?
1: Did we give them a hint, or did we flat out well, say where we are gonna be? <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: if they, maybe they were tuned out or something <laughs> well
1: we uh, we are going to go to a place where the magic is made and not. Imagineering.
0: <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Yes. We're going to be, um, you want to join us next time on episode 12 when, um, connecting with Walt goes on the road to the house that Walt built. Yes. So there, there's another hint for you. <laughs> exactly. And, and we'll be recording another show together in the same room.
1: I know. I, I that's, I think what I'm most excited for. So obviously, uh, this trip that we are currently on has been extremely busy, uh, but you know it's we're, we're finding time mm-hmm. to to be able to do this in person. So it, it's great doing it from from west End to east, but uh, being together is always better.
0: <laughs> oh, absolutely! So so after after this show, you going to join me down at Trader Sam's for a drink?
1: Um, who knows? At this point, uh, we might have already taken a break uh, <laughs> halfway through that episode and and partake in partake. That's not even a word. Wow. (laughs) Uh, we have fun. (laughs) we do.
0: So, so Craig, until our next episode, where can our listeners hear your golden vocal tones?
1: Uh, You can hear me on my weekly show, the dis unplugged universal edition, as well as, uh, the, the Disney world edition of the dis unplugged, the show that started it all. And, uh, And then, you know, I'm just bouncing around. I'm on YouTube all the time at youtube.com slash disunplugged as well as youtube.com slash WDWinfo. And, uh, you know, if if you ever need anything, just head over to Twitter. Find me at Telecluster. And uh, you can't hear my golden tones there, but you'll be able to see my black font.
0: (laughs) And maybe they'll even bump into you in the parks.
1: Yeah, you know, some sometimes I've I'm trying to hide more and more.
0: So <laughs> So and you can find me every Sunday night on the Dis Unplugged Podcast, Disneyland edition, with my good friends Tom Bell, Nancy Johnson, Mary Joe mulatto Willie, and Tony Spatel, where we have lots of fun talking about Walt's Park that started it all. And also than California theme parks, the Walt Disney Family Museum, and even more Disney history. So listen to us live on Mixler at 7 p.m. Pacific time, Disneyland time. You can download our two weekly shows from iTunes each Monday. And if you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes at www.mixler.com. DizUnplugged.com. You can send me messages at Michael at www.info.com. Twitter I'm at mbowling121. Facebook Michael Bowling and Instagram Michael Bowling the Diz. So thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing. That it was all started by a man. Walt Disney and his brother Roy.